I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. One problem with drug discovery and development is that answers about the way substances act in the body are often not apparent early in the process. Though human cell assays have been used, they have their limitations. BioSeq's Biomap technology seeks to improve the success rate of research and development by bringing the complexity of human biology to cell assays and incorporating that into the earliest stages of the drug discovery process. We spoke to Ellen Berg, Director and General Manager at BioSeq, about the company's technology, how it seeks to improve discovery and development, and other ways that technology is being used by the industry. Ellen, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. One of the reasons that drug discovery and development is so expensive is, is not only the high rate of failure, but the fact that failure often comes after there's significant investment in a potential drug only to find there's a safety risk. How, how are drugs typically screened before they enter human trials, and, and what are the limitations of traditional approaches? Yeah, there there is a lot of work that's done on any compound or, or new drug before it gets into people. There's in vitro assays where cells are in culture, uh, animal studies to try to pick up um, effects in, in a whole organism, and, uh, you know, it, it's years and millions of dollars invested before we even start clinical trials. So uh, the types of assays are uh, usually a simple cell culture with a cell line or a liver cell and uh, looking for, you know, overt adverse effects of, of a compound or a drug in vitro, cell death, looking simply at cell death. Uh, and then in vivo, um, you know, giving animals large concentration, large doses of the drug and looking for, uh, you know, just any, any kind of uh, phenotype. Uh, you know, whether loss of blood pressure or, you know, the animals start shaking or, or things like that. And, um, so, you know, the, the assays we have had up to now have been fairly crude and frankly not predictive. And that explains why we haven't done a better job of, you know, reducing attrition in clinical studies. Uh, you know, over the last 20 years, it's still, you know, hovering around 30% of clinical um, failures are due to, you know, unexpected toxicities. Can you explain what your Biomap platform is and, and where it sits in the discovery and development process? Yeah, so it is a in vitro approach that is uh, aimed at bridging the gap between whole organisms and uh, cell culture. So we decided that uh, we're in most cell, uh, the cell in vitro assays that were available, you know, uh, that are available to us now, they're too simplistic and they don't do a very good 
job of modeling tissue biology or organism biology. And so we went back, you know, to the beginning and said, what are we missing? One of the easy things that we're missing is the fact that cells talk to each other. And so a lot of our assays have co-cultures where we have more than one cell type, you know, together in a dish. The second aspect is the kind of cells that we use. We use um, primary human cells. So they're human. They're from people. And they are um, taken from normal donors and uh, not subject to genetic uh, engineering or long-term culture in a dish so that uh, they are more like cells in our body. So they retain a lot more of the, uh, you know, normal regulatory uh, controls that, that cells do when they're in our body. Um, uh, pe- people may not realize that, that most of the in vitro work is done with cell lines, which have been propagated in cell culture in plastic dishes for years and years and years. And the, you know, famous example is the HeLa cells, <laughs> which have been in culture for something like 50 years and are uh, essentially Franken cells. <laughs> They've lost a lot of the uh, regulatory pathways that normal cells have. So they're not representative of, of normal cells. So we use primary human cells. We use co-cultures. And the third aspect is we control the disease environment. And so we create little models of tissue disease uh, in a dish by adding in factors to uh, supplement what the cells might make to uh, make them feel uh, as if they were in a, t- in a tissue or, or in the body. And, um, and then what we measure are actually uh, disease risk factors. So clinical biomarkers that are already known to be important for disease. So with these three aspects of the, you know, assays, um, coupled with the fact that we designed these from day one to be high throughput so that we could generate very large data sets and compare many, many, many drugs and compounds to each other. So, uh, you know, that becomes, you know, a real powerhouse of information that, uh, you know, helps you First of all, understand are these assays predictive at all, and you know do the experiment. And over the years, we've built up more and more validation, and have shown that for for many aspects, these assays are showing good uh, you know predictivity of effects of drugs you know in the clinic, uh, whereas other in vitro assays have not uh, don't have the degree of, of Predictivity. So, in, in designing this this platform, what were you seeking to do, and, and what were the challenges in doing it? Yeah, I mean, it was it started with a very simple observation that um, in my little narrow area of research, which was vascular inflammation, I uh, had been looking at um, disease biomarkers that in in vitro cultures that everybody was using at the time their expression, uh, the regulation of their expression, they would uh, increase in expression and then go, uh, the time course of that was very acute and it would, uh, the level of that biomarker would go up and then go down and disappear very quickly. But yet I knew in vivo that this biomarker uh, uh, got upregulated and remained 
very high expression, you know, for months. Uh, and so I knew that something in vitro we were missing. So what we were missing is, you know, other, other factors that we added and then could recapitulate, you know, the regulation that we see in vivo. So it was the observation that what we saw in vitro wasn't matching and trying different things. What are we missing? Adding in either other cells, right? As a, as a stimulus, so to speak, or other factors that we knew were present in the, in the tissue and disease. And, you know, uh, the gold standard was what does it look like in people? So matching the phenotype in people, that was really the, you know, the key. So it, it seems like there, there are two issues here you're trying to get at. One is, one is the, the complexity of biology and, and yeah. the other is, is kind of that industrial high throughput screening. How, how successful have you been at first mimicking those disease states and then when when you're doing it in a, a high throughput way how how much data can you generate is there is there a way to quantify that yes so um i would say that that you know one of the novel aspects of what we were trying to do or the more difficult aspects, I would say, is combining biologists with computational people. <laughs> so, you know, the informatics plus the biology, you know, usually those types of uh, researchers don't speak the same languages. <laughs> so getting them to work together and, you know, being able to generate very large data sets where you can uh, really test uh, your um, your ideas uh, in a very critical uh, critical manner was uh, was challenging, but certainly uh, you know turned out to be you know very uh, advantageous for us. Um, there's uh, no limit really to the number of compounds and assays you can do. Um, there have been huge advances in miniaturization. Um, of all kinds of in vitro assays, and we've taken advantage of that. Um, and multiplexing, we can now get so much information out of a very small, you know, uh, sample. So that has really uh, opened doors and, and you know, opened, uh, you know, certainly uh, made these capabilities, uh, you know, available. So there's, there is no limit. Um, uh, I mean, of course, there are practical limits in terms of, of numbers of compounds you could test or agents you could test, but the most interesting things, there's not that many interesting things to test. I'll, you know, be frank, one of the uh, uh, things that we struggle with or we're uh, interested in are, for example, very selective probes for maybe that would be inhibitors of a specific target. And, you know, those are few and far between. There are a lot of uh, non-specific probes or um, uh, test agents that uh, one uh, one can look at, but they're not very informative. So we don't. There's not that many drugs, right? The FDA approved drug list is like a thousand. That's nothing. <laughs> so are, are so, you are are you able to answer questions that previously could only be answered by putting drugs into humans? Yes. And, and more than that is we help explain why uh, a particular 
clinical activity is seen, either an efficacy or safety-related effect. We certainly don't cover all of biology, and um, I wouldn't uh, claim to even, you know, uh, uh, claim to do that. But uh, it turns out that any additional information, you know, even 5% better than what we have now is still a billion-dollar <laughs> proposition, uh, you know, given given the difficulties that, that we have. So, and we're continually expanding the platform. We cover... Uh, a lot of tissue biology, inflammation, cardiovascular, respiratory. Uh, we're expanding into kidney and fibrosis, oncology. Um, CNS might be the next area that uh, that we'd like to, you know, expand the technology. There are limitations to everything, and so this, what we do, certainly fits in. Uh, is complementary to other types of studies, and the nice thing about what we do is that it's it's a bridging technology. It bridges information at the molecular level, all the way up to you know what we're measuring in clinical studies. So because of we because of our focus on translational biomarkers as endpoints in our assays, that really bridges that gap. So it's a nice. Uh, technology that fits and connects a lot of other approaches that, that people are interested in using. And is there any data on time or cost savings using the technology? Yes. Um, the uh, One of the more interesting areas right now in, in drug discovery is uh, uh, interesting approaches that, that people are going back to is phenotypic drug discovery, which is, you know, Testing compounds in a in a live biological system, and you know without um, really knowledge of the molecular target that you're screening against, and um, that it has been a very rich source of of new drugs. Um, a lot of you know first in class drugs were actually identified through these types of whether they were animal models or uh, even observations with people. Um, you know, and then the target was subsequently discovered. But these, uh, uh, there's interest in, uh, you know, doing phenotypic drug discovery. But when you do that, you get a, you get a compound or molecule that has activity, uh, that you want, but you don't necessarily know the molecular target. And there's a lot of concern about, wow, if we don't know the molecular target, that adds a lot of risk. Because what if it's something known? What if it's something that we know is has, you know, side effects, and what about how do we protect, you know, protect the intellectual property? And so um, by uh, one of the things that we can do is automatically classify molecules as to their target and pathway mechanisms of action based on all the known molecular targets and 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 uh, compounds and tool compounds that we have in our database. And so what we're able to do for folks in this area is rapidly triage out known mechanisms from something that might be novel and uh, uh, and also activities that, that might have safety issues. So um, that can save people a lot of money. We had one 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 of our clients told us that they had some great compounds that were effective in animals. It was, they were identified in a phenotypic screen. And they had, you know, gone all in with this program, gotten a lot of animal data, 
and spent at least a year trying to identify the target. And they said that they had spent, you know, a million dollars outside, you know, with with out, uh, external, um, you know, contractors trying to identify the target. Uh, and with ours, you know, it was a matter of six weeks and fewer than three-figure <laughs> or fewer than a... Uh, six-figure uh, dollar value, and they immediately got, you know, got the answer. So um, we could have saved, you know, a lot of time and uh, time and money on 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 those types of um, you know projects. In other cases, we actually, for safety, um, rather than you know killing projects, we've, uh, you know, actually been able to rescue projects by identifying, you know, why was there a safety issue and helping, which helped actually manage the program and, and continue it in clinical trials. And I think that's, you know, that's more valuable when you can rescue a program. We, we talked about complexity, but but human variance is, is also an issue. We're in this age where developers are becoming very conscious of personalized medicine. It, and if you put a drug into a hundred patients, they're not all going to react the same way. Does your platform allow for variance in any way? So, um, how, yes, it does. Uh, one of the interesting things about you know human variation and 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 in clinical trials is the fact that exposure levels among patients among you know, individuals who are, uh, you know, receiving a drug vary by tenfold. So um, that's one of the things you can assess in vitro is the therapeutic window, so to speak, which in when you get into the population needs to be, you need to have a good window between, you know, efficacy and safety to allow for that variation in exposure. That's number one. Um, number two, in terms of looking at how individuals respond, um, we have actually done customized studies with our platform where instead of using it uh, as a screen for new compounds or for mode of action type of thing, to actually look at, you know, what is the variation in response. And so because you can do individual donors, you can pool them, uh, you can, you know, mix and match, uh, uh, that sort of thing. You can tie it to genetics, right? Now, the challenge with that is the number of donors you need to look at. And the reality is, even the folks in, who are doing, you know, GWAS analysis, the, you know, genome-wide association studies, understand is there's not enough people in the world to really, <laughs> um, there's not enough samples, shall we say, <laughs> to really do the kinds of studies we would like to do in trying to associate genetic differences uh, with, you know, particular effects. Um, the So there's genetic components and there's also environmental. So I think we certainly contribute to uh, our standard platform contributes to environmental differences. And that's when you see we do combination studies, so you can look at drugs together. And um, we know that when we go into the clinic, some people, in, uh, for example, in arthritis, they will be on a baseline therapeutic like methotrexate, and some people won't. So there's variation. So I think variation takes uh, a lot of flavors, and all of that could be addressed with, you know, with what we do. Um, 
sort of depends on on the on the question, but it's certainly doable in an in vitro format. You, you've got a number of partnerships from drug companies to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. You talked a little about the ways that the technology is used, but can you walk through maybe a few of these relationships to illustrate the different way the technology is being used? Yes, and and um, what the EPA is doing, which was a very interesting program that they spearheaded now about eight years ago, was they were look to look for in vitro assays, high throughput assays that would help them prioritize chemicals of most concern. They have a 10,000 chemical backlog for toxicology studies. And there's just not enough time or money in the world to do full tox programs on all of those chemicals. And they needed a way to prioritize, you know, which ones would be the most concerning. And so um, what... I, I you know, ideally for, for the EPA and, and their stakeholders, which are chemi- chemical companies and, uh, environmental, uh, folks and, and, and you and I, people who are exposed to all of these things in our daily lives is, you know, a rapid way to tell which compounds or, or chemicals might be of, of concern. And so, you know, these in vitro assays, you know, provide you with uh, with that, um, part of what the EPA was doing was actually um, doing a bake off of in vitro assays and correlating the data with in vivo studies and tox- you know uh, traditional toxicology studies to see um, what types of in vitro assays would would be predictive of you know adverse in vivo effects that we that they could use to triage and you know they've they've uh you know they've gotten some assays and they're moving forward with that so everybody's happy there because you don't want to, you want to use as few animals as possible uh protect the animals and you want to get better data and you need to do it faster and less expensive so if in vitro approaches are sufficiently predictive, that's, you know, that's a no-brainer. So that's what uh, the EPA is doing. And now their project has now uh, become part of this bigger effort at the NIH, the um, Tox 21 program, which involves FDA and NIEHS and NTP, National Toxicology Program, you know, uh, and and, uh, uh, the full NIH for, you know, expanding this approach, not you know, to pharmaceuticals and to drug discovery. So um, that's, you know, ideally that's where we'll be with uh, with that effort. You know, someday we'll be using uh, in vitro assays in, in regulatory to, um, you know, to qualify how how safe is your uh, is your compound. Um, the other types of things uh, we're doing with pharmaceutical companies come to us with all kinds of of uh problems, issues and and uh projects. They are might be have a compound they don't understand why it works. They might uh, be in a very highly competitive target-based program and they need to distinguish their molecule from competitors. Um and uh those are the kinds of things we do. We also use our assays to do drug discovery. So we've run high throughput screens with individual uh assays that we've 
uh, either run in-house or we've transferred out to, to run a high-throughput screen and find, you know, new chemical matter and, you know, starting drug discovery programs from, from scratch um, uh, using, you know, this phenotypic drug discovery approach I talked about. So those are the kinds of things that, that, that people come to us. And they usually are coming to us for biology that they don't have the time or inclination to develop in-house. So, um, you know, that covers a lot. <laughs> well, there's also been some efforts to repurpose drugs and rescue drugs that may have been abandoned in clinical development for one reason or another. Does your platform have potential in that regard? Yes, we've done quite a few studies um, on, uh, on this regard, and um, those are very interesting. The, uh, you, there's usually, you know, some degree of clinical information, and, uh, you know, the goal is to either find a new indication or to understand, you know, the mode of action so that uh, a new indication can be developed. So we certainly do those. Um, I think the challenge is more on the business side for the folks, you know, that, that we do this for is, you know, how do you craft uh, intellect, either intellectual property or, you know, a path forward because uh, molecules that are off patent, you know, it's hard to get funding to, you know, further, you know, develop this in terms of the clinical trials, uh, you know, with, without them, you know, being able to at some point, uh, you know, create a product to make money. So that's the challenging, uh, challenging part. But I think, um, you know, it's a v- certainly very interesting, um, uh, use of, of our platform. Uh, any sense how the FDA looks at the validity of findings from this approach or data generated by it? Yeah, I think, um, so far they've seemed to like it because it has, for the um, for the INDs that, that have been our data has been submitted, um, and we actually write quite a few IND reports that, that get go into submissions. That uh, it it provides that link that I mentioned between other data, in vitro data or animal data, and you know the clinical endpoints. And I think you know so far what what I've heard is is they appreciate it because it makes sense. It's actually easier for clinicians to understand our data. <laughs> it's uh, than, uh, for example, a whole genome, you know, microarray profile where they probably are crossing their eyes. You know, too much data, not enough uh, information. I would knowledge. I would say, and ours is is more of a uh, how how it how it is is used. Um, you know, by the researchers is to explain things. So to pull everything together, so that's uh, they seem to like that and appreciate that. And, and you don't use big words, right? <laughs> Ellen Berg, scientific director and general manager at BioSeq and developer of the BioMap technology. Ellen, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you. Appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.